0: Welcome to Researchers on the Record. This series is brought to you by the Physiotherapy Research Foundation, which supports the promotion and translation of research and is sponsored by PainAway, Australia's number one pain relief brand containing naturally derived active ingredients
1: and partner of the Physiotherapy Research Foundation. Hello and thanks for listening. My name is Claire Pickering and I'm delighted to welcome to the show Dr. Bernadette Brady. Bernie, thank you for taking the time to speak on the record with us today. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting me along. Before we get started, I would like to acknowledge the people on whose country I'm speaking from today. The Yulukit Willem people of the Boomerang country that make up the greater Kulin nations. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging and thank them for their wisdom and ongoing care of this land. And where are you speaking from today, Bernie? Yeah, so I'm based in Lidcombe in Sydney, and so I'd like to acknowledge
0: the Darug people, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging, and thank them for their wisdom and continuous care of the land that I am on today. Now, before we
1: dive into this magical world of research, I'd love it if you could take us back to the beginning of this journey for you. How did you end up working as a physio? And then end up working in research. Yeah, it's, it's taken me back to have a bit of a think about how I ended
0: up where I am today. I grew up in a, a family where healthcare was always important and surrounded by people who worked in healthcare. My grandmother's a nurse, my mum was a nurse, and three of my aunties are nurses. So I guess I was always around a healthcare environment and people who were committed to helping others and improving people's health journey generally. As a child, I was exposed to some of the people my my mother was working with. So she was a, a nurse who worked with children and young adults with disability, and so she would often take us to work with her. And I got to meet some of the children and young people, and uh, so that sort of fostered a sense of, I guess, awareness and self reflection about other people's life journeys and how people are committed to improving and helping others. And and so that was something that I think from an early age I, I thought. You know, if I could pursue a career where I helped others or contributed to something meaningful in that way, then that was going to be a good journey for me. So I guess I was interested in healthcare and then it was actually my brother who really wanted to do physio. So I sort of followed his interests and ended up in a physio degree. And then it was those early few years where I really got to see the diverse settings that physiotherapists actually work in, not just that public face of physio. And that's probably what kept me in the degree and and, um, contributed to my journey as a physio. And so um, as part of the the journey of physio, I was fortunate enough to undertake an honours degree with the University of Sydney, and that gave me really good exposure to research and research that could be clinically oriented. And so that's probably what sparked my interest in research from a fairly early age as I began my clinical journey.
1: So can you talk a little bit about that
0: initial research? Yeah, sure. As part of our honours degree, we got to, to choose different research projects and my supervisor, Julie Redfern, who's now a professor of public health, put together a proposal for a research project looking at hydrotherapy after rotator cuff repair. So it was very clinically oriented. I went out to the, the clinics and the hospitals that were delivering the intervention. I got to see how the interventions were delivered and I got to follow patients through their healthcare journey, collecting their outcomes over a period of time. That early exposure not only sort of embedded me in a clinical environment, but I got to track patients' progress and see how health outcomes changed and also how health outcomes could compare across different groups that were exposed to different interventions. And so from that point, I was interested as a physio in monitoring outcomes of my patients and collecting outcomes and critically reflecting on whether people were changing and why, and why they weren't changing, for instance. So that was a really good opportunity to embed myself in, I guess, clinical research. Did you get the bug with that? Uh, No, probably not immediately. I think I enjoyed doing that, but that probably sparked my passion and my interest perhaps more for physio and and being a physiotherapist and being hands-on and being able to directly influence that change. So I think that really was where my interest was, but also made me really conscious and aware of uh, measuring and monitoring outcomes. So I guess that exposure to collecting data on patients and tracking progress as part of that research degree made sure that that was embedded in my clinical practice very early on. And so from there, I started monitoring and started to question why some people were getting better and other people weren't. And and that is probably what ignited more my research interests down the track.
1: So did you work in clinical practice for a while before you formally went into research? Yeah, so I worked in clinical
0: practice for close to 10 years before I started my PhD. I worked as an outpatient physiotherapist at a public hospital in southwest Sydney. I undertook a master's of musculoskeletal physiotherapy, so thought that by becoming a better physiotherapist, that was the best way for me to improve outcomes for my patients. And then I sort of explored a little bit more other Clinical areas of physiotherapy, doing rheumatology and chronic pain, and so I tried to develop my clinical skills in that way before I pursued my research
1: degree. So, I know you mentioned chronic pain. Yes. And that sparked something for me in relation to your research. So, can you talk to us about that initial research project that you did and also about the link with the Physiotherapy Research Foundation? I know that you received a seeding grant. Can you tell us a little bit about how that all came about? I guess working clinically, uh, I worked in Southwest
0: Sydney, which is a very multicultural area. And so a lot of the clients that I was working with are from diverse cultural backgrounds and speak languages other than English. And so as part of clinical practice, I saw a lot of patients with chronic conditions, particularly chronic pain, chronic musculoskeletal conditions. And just based on observations, we saw that outcomes weren't the same or that patients perhaps we weren't getting the, the outcomes that we desired, or the research told us we should be getting if we applied all of these things the way it was described in the literature. And so that started me thinking well, why are some people getting better and others not? What role does culture play in someone's clinical presentation? What role does their life journeys and life stories play in the way that they present? And it made me start to really reflect on how little I understood about this and how little I actually paid attention to these things as part of my physio assessment and treatment planning. And so when I explored the research on the topic, there wasn't much out there to guide me. So I was, you know, by that stage, a fairly well-developed clinician. I like to use the evidence a lot, but here I was finding that there was not much evidence to guide how I should manage these clients. And so that uh, really sparked the need or the interest in doing a PhD. I was fortunate enough to have two wonderful supervisors who gave me a lot of autonomy and flexibility to design question around my clinical workload and my clinical interest in this area. And so we started to explore a little bit about how people from different cultural backgrounds experience pain. Having that early phase of some qualitative research, we developed a bit of a proposal for how we could adapt our approaches to pain management, our assessment of patients with chronic pain to reflect some of their cultural beliefs and some of their values and some of their preferences, which we know to be culturally mediated as well. And so based on some of that preliminary work, we put in the grant for PRF. Interestingly enough, I wasn't successful the first time around. So earlier on, we'd put in a proposal and that was my first real experience of writing a competitive formal grant application. I learned a lot from the, the process about mm-hmm. refining ideas and being really tight with, I guess, research design and, and what was needed. And that led me to being successful the following year, which was great.
1: I love that you persevered and didn't <laughs> give up. It's a lesson for all researchers, isn't it? Pretty much. I think every,
0: uh, every rejection is just a step closer towards the one that will be funded. So yes,
1: it was a, it was a really great exercise. And did it change at all the way that your research journey went for that particular project by having to refine it? Did it change anything or did you just really become clearer about what you were trying to achieve? I think it
0: really consolidated how we could use some of that pilot or that earlier research. So we had some qualitative data. It made it a little bit clearer that we probably needed to have a more solid proposal if we were going to go forward with a randomized or a pilot randomized control trial. And we did some more stakeholder engagement. So a lot of those earlier years were about building relationships with some of the communities, building relationships with our multicultural health networks, and also being clear about how we were using our qualitative findings to inform an approach for treatment. So it sort of consolidated a lot of those ideas and helped to form, I guess, stronger partnerships that
1: Mm -hmm. led to the success
0: in the following
1: year. I want to go back to the Physiotherapy Research Foundation, the PRF as we affectionately call it. How did you first hear about the PRF and applying for a seeding grant? How did you know that that was an option for you? I'd been a uh, APA member since I graduated or even as a student. So
0: I was loosely aware that there was a physio Research Foundation. I think it comes up every year when you renew your membership as a, a bit of an option. And then it was actually my primary supervisor, who was really good at looking at different opportunities and circulating opportunities. She proposed that we we put forward an application for this. And so that's really how I I found out a little bit more about it and started reading the the requirements. And then as I said before, we were we put in one that was unsuccessful, but that didn't deter us from having another go. And having a better idea about, I guess, what sort of applications were successful and what that uh, it takes to get to that next level.
1: And so for people who don't know, could you explain what a seeding grant is and why it's so important?
0: Basically, the seeding grant was a wonderful opportunity for someone who, I guess, didn't really have a strong research track record. I was predominantly a clinician at that stage. I was enrolled in an early stage of a research degree. We had a little bit of data But if I went for, I guess, a a different type of grant, I wouldn't have been competitive against people who had well-established track records, lots of publications and lots of grant success before. It was a great opportunity for someone who was very early career or building their their research interests to apply for a pocket of funding that would allow them to undertake research that aligns with the, I guess, the directions and the, the aims of the Physiotherapy Research Foundation. And our research was based in physiotherapy, led by a physiotherapist who hadn't previously received any uh, significant grant funding before. And so that was basically a really wonderful opportunity to allow us to get that first study done. And that's really set us up for for a number of things that have come since.
1: I do want to talk a little bit more about the research that followed from that. But I'm curious to know, what did you use that funding for with the seeding grant? How did it contribute to your research?
0: Yeah. So that's a really good point because we were at pretty much a turning point in the PhD deciding where to go next. So we had a bit of an idea that we wanted to evaluate an intervention that looked at how we could adapt different types of approaches to chronic pain for different cultures and different communities. It really depended on what sort of support we got as to how we were going to go about doing that next. Ideally, I wanted to do a pilot randomized control trial because that's a more robust form of research that, I guess, has a stronger basis for valuing the findings and the results. And if we didn't receive that funding, then we would have probably gone a different direction and had to look at a very different design that might have been a pre-post study, or we might have had to even reduce the number of cultures that we were trying to apply this with. So. That was really a turning point for deciding, you know, can we move forward with this in a way that really advances our aims or do we have to accept that we'll need to take, I guess, a little bit longer to get to that, that end point. Because of the, the funding, we were able to do a pilot randomized control trial. I was able to include the three different cultures that I'd started working with. And that was really important because at the end of the day, we didn't want to say that you could adapt a treatment to suit a community. We wanted to say you could adapt to suit different communities. You Mm -hmm. could align your approaches. You could tailor it to suit different cultures' needs, which is a different question in the end. It's Mm -hmm. really about the concept or the idea of cultural adaptation as opposed to a single cultural adaptation. So that allowed us to include all three communities and that allowed us to compare it with usual care. And usual care that was based on the evidence that existed up until that time uh, and was recommended for the management of chronic pain. And so being able to have that pilot RCT data, we were really able to, I guess, consolidate that, you know, not only does culture play an important role, but when you adapt and when you tailor your approaches to suit those particular cultures, then this is really promising for having improved engagement with patients from different cultural backgrounds.
1: Can you tell us which cultures they were and why you selected those? Were they because they were the main cultures in your area? Yeah, that's a really good point. We were interested in looking at an Arabic
0: speaking community. The specific culture was known as Mandayan, an Assyrian culture and a Vietnamese culture. And we selected them based on the, I guess, the demographics of our local area. So what Mm -hmm. were the most prominent languages and cultures other than English that were in our geographical region? But also it was important for me again to have a look at so two of them were Middle Eastern cultures and one was an Asian culture. And again, this really helped us understand adaptation across cultures as opposed to for one community or or one broad ethnicity. Having the diversity of cultures also helped us to explore how adaptation might work for different communities and different values and different language groups. That's how we sort of decided to choose
1: those cultures and to embark on those approaches. Mm -hmm. I assume you would have reached out to those cultures to assist you in getting that background information in order to formulate the treatment options. I think one of the most important things I learned from doing
0: this research was how important community engagement is. You know, it's not a secret that I'm not from one of these target communities. I don't speak a language other than English. We know based on some of the evidence that's available that there is a little bit of suspicion about research and someone coming in thinking they know best and then taking Mm. off with all that information. So building trust and building relationships was a really important part of this journey. And it was really great experience for me as well to learn more about how to work effectively with um, different cultures and, and different communities. So before we even undertook this RCT, that was off the back of at least three, close to four years of community engagement. So it started with going out and just meeting with the different communities at some of the community sessions and finding out well, what was topics of interest to them, what were their concerns doing a few small quality surveys, doing some education sessions for them. So making the relationships reciprocal. So not only I want to use you and do research on you, but here's my contribution to what you guys want or what you, what your communities think is important. And so doing that groundwork, Ensured that we had a lot more success when we wanted to do our qualitative research. So, when we then invited them to come along and participate in some focus groups to tell us more about their experience of pain, that was a lot more successful. We had a lot stronger buy in with that. And we were able to identify a few key community stakeholders that were engaged with us and wanted to be part of that process. And they really helped us to refine our ideas about how we could tailor our interventions to suit the different communities and then work with us. To deliver the interventions when the time came to do that, PainAway is Australia's number one joint and muscle spray and cream topical pain relief brand containing arnica and naturally derived active ingredients. The entire range of PainAway sprays, creams, and tablets is made in Australia, by Australians, for Australians. Always read the label, follow the directions for use. If symptoms persist, talk to your health professional. love being a physio you work hard to be your best you are driven to help others
1: research is the backbone of the physio profession and the physiotherapy research foundation the prf is all about research we offer research grants promote research and make it easy for you to access the latest research by creating bite-sized content so you can stay up to date and on the front foot
0: We know you are passionate about delivering the latest, effective, evidence based care to your patients.
1: And as an APA member, you are directly contributing to the PRF. Thank you for your support so we can continue helping you to be your best.
0: You are the PRF.
1: To learn more about the Physiotherapy Research Foundation, head to australian.physio forward slash PRF. So can you reveal what were the findings? (laughs) Yeah, sure. So basically when we
0: compared a head-to-head comparison of a culturally adapted approach versus usual care, what we saw is that our patients had greater engagement. So that manifested in people who were attending, people who were, we would use the word adhering to or participating in treatment, especially a home exercise program or participating in active approaches for pain management. And then also the satisfaction of care. We we had high levels of satisfaction of patients who received the culturally adapted approaches compared to usual care. That was important because for a lot of these communities, dissatisfaction or poor engagement manifests in treatment dropout. That's certainly what we saw observationally before we started this study is that patients might start treatment, but when it doesn't align with what their expectations are or what their values are, they won't come back. They might start off doing things. I don't see why this exercise is important for me. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to come Mm -hmm. back to you. And that just accumulates. The health problems accumulate and pushes the problem further down the track until problems become so big that it's much harder to manage them and much harder to get improvements in outcomes. While we'd love to say this fixed everyone's problem and this was the, the magic bullet, it just showed some really good outcomes in terms of engagement of patients. And we had some small changes in pain-related suffering. But essentially, we were underpowered to be able to say, look, this is the approach you should take to definitely improve health outcomes. But engagement's an important step towards Mm. advancing and improving clinical outcomes. So it was really promising in that regard. Where did this research lead you to? From a clinical point of view. So I, I still work clinically. And I worked clinically throughout my PhD. So the direct implication was we were able to change the way we delivered treatment in the hospitals and in the clinics that we were working with. So we now run culturally adapted treatment programs based on these principles. And so that's part of our core business now. We adopt the approaches that we explored in our main studies. And so uh, patients who come into the clinics have the option of doing a culturally adapted program as part of their usual care or as part of their usual business nowadays. From a clinical point of view, we've certainly been able to improve the engagement of our patients through treatment. From a research point of view, this has led to the types of questions that I'm working on at the moment and essentially have been building on this idea of cultural adaptation and cultural tailoring but trying to make it or progress it to a point where I guess it's more sustainable. And what I mean by that is it's impossible for one healthcare provider to know about how to adapt their Mm -hmm. treatment to suit every different culture. You know, in Australia, we have some 200 different Mm ethnocultures that people identify with. So I'm never going to know everything about my patient's cultural background. But that doesn't mean that we can't have ways of inquiring about it and ways of tailoring and adapting and gathering that information from the individual at hand. And so what we're looking at now is implementing, I guess, a partnership model of care where we are able to work effectively with patients and with communities to be able to adapt our approaches on an individual patient level and not necessarily have to have several layers of cultural knowledge or stakeholder engagement or qualitative research underpinning what we do for a particular patient at hand. And so that's the sort of questions we're trying to look at now is more models of care that can be both patient-centered and culturally responsive.
1: Where are you up to
0: with that? Post-doctorally, I've I've been successful in getting a fellowship. So I'm about halfway through a three-year clinical research fellowship that's looking at this partnership model of care. We've managed to get some seed funding to support a pilot study Which has looked at implementing a peer mentor model of care in different settings across our local health district. And so, this is patients with chronic pain, with osteoarthritis who are undergoing a knee replacement, and with a few different types of musculoskeletal pain, such as knee pain and low back pain. And essentially, what we're we're doing with this peer mentoring model of care is we're matching patients with a peer mentor. So, someone who's been through that service before, who's Mm -hmm. from that cultural background they identify culturally with those patients and they become our missing link i as the healthcare provider work with them and work with the patients simultaneously so that we're trying to foster a common language that we're all speaking the mentor provides me insights into the culture as well as provides patients with some sort of lived experience credibility of the interventions that we want to adopt and so we're looking at ways that we can make that sustainable and make that core business so that we can work with i guess patients from different cultural backgrounds simultaneously and not only have these approaches that may work for one or two cultures that we more commonly see. And so we're looking at testing that a little bit more further now that we've got some pilot data on how and what that might look
1: like. And when do you anticipate being able to publish those results?
0: At the moment, um, COVID has provided a bit of a hiatus in data collection. So that's the chance now we're currently writing up our pilot results. We presented it um, or some of the results two weeks ago at the National Allied Health Conference. So we've got some preliminary work that we're looking to to publish at the moment. And then we've got a, a plan for a cluster randomized control trial where we'll be looking at this idea a little bit more broadly. And so we hope to start that early next year, depending how I guess the pandemic has affected clinical services at that point in time. But look, we were able to implement the model of care. We were able to pivot as the Mm -hmm. the current word is when COVID hit and we had to move from a face-to-face model of care to a virtual one. We had our mentors who were wonderfully adaptable. They were fantastic. I had a a lovely 80-year-old Assyrian lady who learned how to use telehealth and a tablet and a dongle to connect with people from her community. And it was just, it was really remarkable what people Mm -hmm. were able to do.
1: I think if we can do that, anything's possible. Wow. And I'm curious to know, is this something that you would like implemented at the university level? Where do you see the clinical practicalities of this? I mean, it's incredible work what you're doing. And, you know, as as a multicultural society, it's imperative that we do this. Where do you see it fitting in? Yeah.
0: So I think what's really interesting about this is it can be and should be implemented in lots of different ways, um, in lots of different settings. So what I'm testing at the moment is obviously the direct clinical applications of this, but the, the concepts that we've been exploring for the last few years about getting cultural knowledge, about being aware of the influence that culture has on someone's presentation, about conducting assessments where we inquire about someone's culture, where it actually is part of understanding their illness model and their presentation where we inquire about life stories. What has their journey been like to date and how has that influenced the way that they experience health? All of that's part of what should be our routine assessment for any individual, not just people who don't speak English. And so I think this can be very much integrated into our university degrees as part of learning to conduct a patient-centered assessment. I think um, already universities are making great strides and certainly some of the standards that have been changing about being culturally responsive and embedding cultural responsiveness in the undergraduate curriculums are making good efforts towards doing that. Moving away from silos where I only conduct a musculoskeletal assessment or a cardiorespiratory assessment or a neuroassessment to thinking about I'm going to conduct an assessment on a person and and then, you know, use those different elements to refine what types of questions I ask. I think all of that can be embedded, but I think we also have to be mindful that I guess when you're at the undergraduate level, you're trying to learn so much simultaneously that it's really hard to stand back and to think critically and reflectively. And, And if we try to foster that awareness, some of this stuff will come, it'll grow. I'm certainly, if I look back at where I was when I started my career, even when I started my PhD, it's, it's completely different now. I learned so much about my practice and how I go about interacting with patients from this, this PhD journey. So I think we just need to, to keep in mind that it's also part of your stage as a clinician that you develop mm-hmm. these skills.
1: I want to have a quick chat while we're talking about undergrads and students in particular but also the early career physios. In relation to the PRF, can you explain to perhaps physios who are not interested in research or don't really understand what research is yet or why it's so important, could you explain to them why does the PRF matter and why does research matter to physios?
0: I think if someone's not necessarily interested in research, I think understanding outcomes and understanding why people do well or why people might not do well, where to put your efforts, all of that comes from health research in general. You don't have to have a great interest in you know, undertaking a randomized control trial or doing qualitative research to be able to apply the findings that programs like the Physiotherapy Research Foundation contribute to. So at, at an individual level, if you understand how to diagnose different things or why one patient might do better than another, or what are the different factors that contribute to someone adhering or not adhering, all of this comes from different forms of research inquiry. And you're going to be a better clinician if you're able to, one, not only be aware of that, but apply the, the different forms of evidence that, that's out there. And it's not all about I guess the latest RCT, it's also about being able to think critically about the types of research that are out there. So when I started doing my PhD, I looked at the the evidence for different things and started to really understand that the people that I'm treating every day are not necessarily the people who are included in these research studies. So while I had an idea of what evidence was there, we also had to think critically about how we could apply that evidence in a way that is relevant, if at all, to our particular patients. I guess to, how do I say it, to, to an early stage clinician or, or someone who's a student, programs like the Physiotherapy Research Foundation ensure that some of those ideas that might not be funded because they're not robust RCTs with people with really great track records are going to be explored and we're going to have, I guess, different avenues for, for improving our profession by funding sort of seed funding and and funding junior researchers who might have really great clinical ideas, but not necessarily the strong track records to execute them necessarily.
1: Moving forward, what does your future look like? Obviously, post-COVID world. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I still consider myself
0: a clinician or a, a clinician researcher is probably a better description these days. I enjoy working clinically. I love the ability to apply the things I'm exploring every day in the clinic with my patients and sort of test on an N of one what those things might look like or how that might work. And I I like getting that immediate feedback about what we're doing and how that may have an effect on people's health outcomes. I still have strong interest in continuing to work clinically, but I also have this strong motivation to improve health outcomes and to pursue an agenda of health equity. So I think there's a lot of work we can do still. I want to maintain a clinical research position. I'm fortunate enough to have the fellowship and have the support from my health facility to allow me to do that. And also to be able to, to mentor other people in the, what interests me. So I have um, PhD students and master students and honours students now that hopefully can share in my enthusiasm for doing clinical research. What sparked this for me was the opportunity to complete an honours degree that was very clinically embedded. And so being able to provide that opportunity for students as well to learn from that experience uh, may lead to who knows what in the future. So I think that's really optimistic for our profession. And then also to be able to look at pragmatic research, research that is conducted on patients who are very often excluded from research because they don't speak English or because they have lots of multiple morbidities that would otherwise be excluded from really tightly designed randomized control trials. And so being able to explore topics that do matter for the patients that we're seeing every day in the clinic particularly that health equity agenda for ensuring that all Australians, regardless of your postcode, regardless of your ethnicity, have the opportunity for good health outcomes.
1: I have nothing more to say. <laughs> it's just, it's, um, thank you so much for the work you're doing. It's so important. And for giving a voice to those who don't have a voice is essentially what you're doing. I want to thank you for taking the time to speak on the record with us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. I can't wait to hear more about this work that you're doing and the clinical implications that we'll have not just for the physiotherapy world but for all Australians regardless of their background so thank you for the work that you're doing and thank you for speaking on the record with us today.
0: Well thank you for inviting me along and I'm very grateful for the support that I've received from the Physio Research Foundation. It's really set me up for a very promising or optimistic career in research and um, I'm very grateful for that early level support because it's led me to where I am today and hopefully lead to some great things in the future. you've been listening to researchers on the record an australian physiotherapy association production brought to you by the physiotherapy research foundation and sponsored by pain away to learn more about this episode's guest and the series head to our website australian.physio forward slash researchers on the
1: record and if you like this episode please subscribe and leave a review thanks for listening